0: You're listening to season one, episode three of How the Story Got Made, produced and recorded by Lataku and hosted by the company's co-founders, President Jade Curian and CEO Paul Adrian. Hello everyone and welcome to episode three of How the Story Got Made. I'm Jade Curian, co-founder and president of Latiku.
1: And I'm Paul Adrian, CEO and co-founder of Lataku. And we wanna thank you so much for joining us. We launched this series because Jade and I started out as news reporters ourselves in the field and know that the best stories are often the ones about how the story came together, that behind the scenes action you never get to see on TV, how you got the story idea, how you landed the big interview, how you captured the perfect shot. And in today's episode, We'll find out how do you do your job when you have no power or cell service.
0: In today's episode, we're focusing on the catastrophic flooding in July in Central Europe that took the lives of nearly 250 people. The flooding, which was Europe's deadliest flood since 1985, led to widespread power outages, forced evacuations, and lots of damage.
1: Whole towns and villages were impacted in areas where flooding never before was an issue. The cleanup is ongoing today and the damage caused to infrastructure will take years to repair. As businesses try to salvage what's left, the issue has turned to insurance, flooding not something anyone predicted at this level. We have three journalists with us today who covered this historic weather event. Luke Hanrahan, Lucy Huff, and Jack Perrick. Lucy Huff is a Brussels-based TV and radio correspondent Working for the international news agency Feature Story News, she was deployed for several days to cover the devastating flooding in Belgium, the worst impacted region of the country.
0: Luke Hanerhan is a broadcast specialist here at LATICU and a freelance reporter for multiple networks. He is based in London and flew out to one of the worst affected districts in Germany to document the impact of this natural disaster. Jack Perrick is a freelance TV, radio, and print correspondent based in Brussels. He was sent to Belgium to cover the aftermath of this disaster.
1: Welcome, and thank you all for joining us. We know you're busy and have a lot going on. In fact, one of you we didn't know was going to be here until the very last minute, Jack. <laughs> Where are you today, by the way?
2: Yeah, yeah, I've had a bit of a, hello everyone, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've had a bit of a, a shift I got sent to Poland on Sunday night to cover the migrant story on the border with Belarus. <laughs> Uh, so I'm currently sat in Warsaw, and I was expecting to be on a flight when this was happening, but in the end, we the flight's been delayed, and we're, we're leaving tomorrow instead. Um, so I'm really happy to join everyone to have this
1: discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here, and thank you, Lucy and Luke, as well. So all three of you, um, it occurs to us, are really unique for many American journalists in that you report for multiple news agencies. Here, of course, folks typically work for one employer, and you only see them on one brand. Right. Um, on the screen right now, we see just a variety of pictures here uh, showing the variety of folks that you work for. Uh, often, we understand you're solo in the field, even for live shots. So Lucy, let's start with you. Um, can you give us a little context to this model and, um, and what a typical day looks like for you.
3: Yeah, hi everyone. Um, so Feature Story News is a international news agency that's based in Washington, DC, but it has a hub in London as well, and then bureaus all around the world. Um, I work in the very small Brussels Bureau. We're a team of four people. Like you say, I'm mostly working independently, although I do have the option of, of taking a crew with me if and when it's a story of the sort of magnitude like the floods. Uh, In that instance, I I did have uh, one crew member with me. Um, It works, we we have a huge number of clients around the world. We have PBS News Hour in the States. Uh, We're working with Newsy now, who I know uh, Luke has an affiliation with as well. Um, We also work for a number of clients in Asia, as well as in the UK. So each morning it's, you know, I, I feel in some ways that I'm freelance. It's up to me to pitch out editorial lines. I have a relative degree of editorial independence. Uh, and in terms of self-operating my kit, we have a FSN live app, which is uh, just on an iPhone. So in terms of going out on a story, I'll use a tripod, an iPhone with an iRig and a microphone. So it's a really kind of simple and nimble piece of kit uh, that is that, really, really effective in the shot is,
2: is uh, really fantastic.
0: Luke and Jack, you're freelancers also, which seems to be more common in Europe uh, versus working full time for one station. Why do you think that is? And describe that, what life is like as a freelancer.
4: Well, life as a freelancer is extremely unpredictable um but that's that's kind of the way we like it because it gives us the opportunity to go to the locations where the story is happening which as a freelancer you're able to dictate a lot more perhaps when i was staff i was i had my own patch um i had my own brief but here my brief is whatever i choose to pitch um and if i'm lucky enough to get those stories commissioned away i go and off i go um so it's liberating i guess in in that way in in that you have more control over your destiny however you know you're also constantly on you're constantly switched on to what's going on around you so it can be quite relentless and i think jack's having that kind of experience at the moment are you mate
2: yeah yeah i really agree i mean i i Going freelance wasn't really a choice for me. I was sat happily working for for Euronews covering some, which is a a European channel that I was covering two maternity covers. Um, And then just like the the organization was was that I had to go freelance basically at the end. And I've continued to work with them quite extensively. and it just it just opened the door for me to sort of build myself uh, a little sort of niche in coming out of Brussels and working out how I was going to do it. And it's meant that I've also done a lot more print work um, and done some different stuff. But as Luke says, for me, I thoroughly enjoy the ability to to choose to choose stories, which I think um, when you're working purely like within a channel, you you tend to. Unless you're the top reporter, you take the scraps and the bits around the side, whereas I think we can be just much more flexible, especially self-shooting. You can just walk up somewhere, chuck a bit of money at a flight and see if you can sell some pieces, basically, Uh, which is is what I tend to do. (laughs)
0: Yeah, the freelance lifestyle is good in that you can say no, but... (laughs) it's really hard to say no, right? Because, I mean, there are these incredible stories and you know it needs coverage. And also that's that's how you make a living by saying yes, right? So do you find that conflict in yourselves all the time?
4: Yeah, definitely. I think if you said yes to everything, you would burn out, you would make yourself ill. So you you get to a stage, I mean, for me, it happened after about 18 months of being freelance where I thought, you know, I don't have to worry about having a shortage. You know, there is work out there. I need to be disciplined about what I say yes to, because if I say yes to everything, I'm just going to have to take a month off work because I've burnt out. So that's really the, um, you know, it's a it's a privilege to be in that position to have to have enough work to to say no occasionally. But you you do have to you have to be careful. You don't say no too often because obviously you don't want them to. To to use somebody else or to go off you, so it's a it's a balancing
2: act. You know, Lucy will Lucy will remember when when I went freelance, so, so Sitting in a pub in Brussels, me going like, listen, if I have to like ride an Uber Eats bike to earn my money, I'm going to do it. And since those days, I have literally like begged for days off at times. You know, it, like if you if you know if you are vocationally a TV reporter and a journalist. You will find work and you will find stories and people will take them. That's that's always what I sort of advise other people that are considering considering the sort of self, self-employment self side of
1: journalism. Great. I, I know the topic of the day is, is European flooding, which all of you um, covered, but to drill down just a little more in freelancing, yeah. do, do you think there's something about being a resident of Europe, living in the European Union Um, or England that makes it more possible to have this career choice than in other areas like the United
4: States? 100%. You know, if you look at other nations around the globe, there isn't public healthcare, there isn't that protection. And the NHS is always there and has always been there throughout my life. So if I get sick, I will be looked after. I, I sometimes wonder in America whether perhaps things are a little bit more extreme. And, that, and that's one of the reasons there are fewer freelance journalists because there are more risks. Um, if you don't have a job, you're out on the street. Whereas here we, we have a, a welfare state that protects people. And I think that gives you a little bit more you know, flexibility in terms of the decisions that you make, potentially. I don't know, I might be wrong, but that's my instinct.
3: And certainly being in Brussels, I mean, this is obviously where European policy is made, so you can really go where the story is taking you. I mean, COP26 as an example, we've got a delegation going to Glasgow. I was uh, able to go to Naples recently in Italy to talk about an issue of migration and vaccination there. You you have a huge amount of flexibility, given that we're in a border-free Schengen zone where we've got freedom of movement, we don't show our passports in order to cross the border. Um, or you, you do, but it's a formal immigration check. So it can be incredibly mobile and really editorially liberating to be able to have that flexibility of where the story is taking you. And that has been a real blessing of being here in Brussels.
0: Well, I wanna bring in a comment from the chat um, as you were speaking and uh, Luke also was speaking. Uh, we have a journalist, I think, um, Andy Peterson, who says, truth about healthcare. When I changed companies, I had a three month gap Nervous about a big health issue. Um, Outside of major cities in the US, freelancers are rare. The only ones I worked with were in Richmond because of our proximity to DC. So some of those things that you brought up, Luke, um, this seems to be uh, likely an American journalist talking about it. I recognize the name, so. Um, I I
4: suppose that, sorry to Jade, that segues us quite nicely into into Germany, um, which was dangerous. So that's the other thing about journalism is that it it is dangerous and you can injure yourself. Um, I know loads of camera operators and journalists who've had injuries on the job. You know, it doesn't have to be extreme environments. It might just be that they slipped on on some wet steps or something. But, you know, healthcare is really, really crucial. And, um, you know, as a journalist, it's an active job. So you're taking risks.
1: So, now on to the topic of the day. <laughs> yeah. The flooding hit in July, and all of you were sent to cover it. I'm going to start with you, Luke, because you put together for us a reel of your coverage, and I'd love to take a look at it.
4: What's left of this small German town looks like the days after a war, but it was the weather that exploded here.
2: And three times under the
4: water. 67-year-old Wolf Ackerman was lucky to survive. He was swept away by the torrent describing how he first clung to a tree and then took shelter in the trunk of an upturned car. Some of the older residents remember the last time it flooded in the center of this town. 60 years ago, the water level rose to just 30 centimeters off the ground. And to give you an idea of the scale of comparison between the two floods, on Wednesday night into Thursday, the flood water rose to above these windows, nine feet, in the air, it's never been seen before in this 1,000-year-old German town.
2: I have no word for this. What happened here? It's uh, it's dramatic. I'm uh, I'm depressive. I I can't. Um, I I cried um, often. Um, It's, uh, we, the water came so quickly.
4: The search operation continues with the death toll approaching 200 and an entire region cut off from power and water with bridges and train stations destroyed. I, I shot all of that, on most of it, on this GoPro. And this was the perfect tool for, the job because I probably walked about 20 miles uh that day I started at about six in the morning and I had to walk because the roads were all closed so the idea of having to carry anything heavier than this for too long and it's great because you can just press record and point and shoot and away you go and what's remarkable is the audio on this is just incredible so you know you can you can stand quite a long way away from it and it's still picking everything up so
2: yeah. was, it, was that audio from your stand up was that on that GoPro?
4: It was on this GoPro Now I have Mate, since... That was
1: amazing
4: Yeah I have since bought a, um, an adapter so I can have a, a wired cable mic on onto this GoPro but most of the time I'm doing when I'm doing piece to cameras on this or stand ups on this I'm in a rush so I find the audio on the GoPro is is absolutely adequate. Um, and it was really eye-opening, actually. I, I, I had intended just to use my, my iPhone 12, but I was finding that the iPhone 12 audio wasn't as strong um, without a microphone. So I swapped to the GoPro, and yes, it was revelatory, really. And I now use that on a lot of my kind of breaking, breaking stories because um, it's, it's a really amazing camera. I'm thinking about getting the Insta360 which which gives you the 360 so you can pick which angle you're choosing which is basically covers the bases you can shoot lots of different things at once Um, so that's my next investment potentially but the GoPro which my wife bought me you know for my birthday two or three years ago has just been one of the best cameras I could possibly have wanted Uh, so yeah
0: So let's talk about the technology then this is a good time to talk about that Luke talked about the technology that he uses in the field Um, if we could go through you know with Lucy and Jack you know what are the tricks out there the the technology pieces that you're using that's making things easier for you
3: well we had we were deployed on the Friday morning so it was the third day I think of the the flood damage that we saw. And we were asked to send a lot of B-roll through to ITV, which is a broadcaster in the UK. We decided to bring our XD cam with us as well as the iPhone with a gimbal. Um, We shot, when we got on the ground, we shot a huge amount of stuff on an XD cam, but then had to make a really snap decision. Obviously there was no power within about 20 miles of where we were. So we we had about 70% battery on our laptop and we had to make a decision about whether to process all of that through Premiere, cut it down or try and export all of the raw. Either way, there was a risk that we were gonna run out of battery by the time we would made that export. And in hindsight, I wish we had just shot everything on the iPhone with the gimbal. Um, Yeah, so this this is the the FSN Live kit that I was talking about earlier. So you can just see I have uh, the tripod, the iPhone. So that's a really simple, very, very nimble um, kit for live broadcasting. In the end, on the second day that we were deployed there, we ended up shooting everything on the iPhone. Uh, with a gimbal and then just using the store forward function in the FSN live app to send everything through and it was just so much more efficient and so much better and we had exactly the same quality so uh, we really learned from our mistakes on the first day of the coverage.
0: And how about Jack, what did you pack going out into this? So
2: I, I actually only did a bit more of a clear up thing, but I can I can I think I can add uh, some stuff about Mojo Mo to to what Luki Luke and Lucy have said because I, I sort of consider myself like a, a very. Um, well, the way I self-shoot is kind of different. Luke and I, when, when I went freelance, I was ringing Luke and asking, like, what microphones are you using? And I remember, for instance, you said about that Sennheiser clip mic. I see you use it, Luke. It's like a clip mic that links with an iPhone. I bought it. You love it. I absolutely hated it. Really? Sent it back. Yeah, I just, <laughs> it just didn't work for me. I and use I it all it, the time. I know, yeah, I see. And your reports are really good with it. But I just couldn't get it to work and I couldn't trust it. And I think the reason I bring it up is because for self-shooting and especially with phones, you will say this as well, Luke, and, no, and Lucy as well, you only take the things that you trust. Now, I never put in anything in my bag unless I know it's gonna shove in. So I've got a Sennheiser like mic thing, which I know if I put it in, and I put that microphone to somebody's face that the audio is gonna come back in quality. I only take lights I know that can, Um, like little top lights that I know can I used to have one that didn't like if you put it on with a charging block it wouldn't work it had to charge to start with so I need one that can have a charging block on it and continue to light Um, my thing like when I used to self-shoot with cameras which I used to do it was for my back I, I had back problems like most journalists and especially shooters and so my thing is like how little can I bring my kit down to. So I just have this Benro tripod, a Umanzi thing, I don't know what that is, like a grid thing, an iPhone 12, a Sennheiser mic, a mic flag. I also have a little um, a little lav mic, but I rarely use it and a small light done. And that's all I take with me anywhere basically. Um, and Erin is asking, is it me that rides a bike? Yeah. So I shove the tripod at the back of my bike and ride everywhere around Brussels keeps me fit, well, fit, <laughs> and uh, it's cheap. So yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, trusting your kit is the most important thing for a Mojo, I'd say.
1: So I, I think what you're saying, I mean, what an exciting time to be a journalist
0: mm. and have
1: so many tools that you can carry in your in your pocket. You know, small enough, literally, that you can ride a bike, like you say, Jack. And in America, I know we're thinking, oh my gosh, who could be a reporter on a bike? But in Austin, Texas, of course, they're doing deliveries, you know, of uh, food and these folks are coming on bikes and sometimes they're faster than folks in cars yeah. because guess what there's not a there's not a bike jam. <laughs> like there's always a, a traffic jam. I want to hit the chat because we've got some great comments coming in. Uh, one again from Andy Peterson, who mentions um, some of his gear, uh, saying that he has a six foot wired lav mic for the iPhone and a Ulanzi rig to hold the, the iPhone which I guess is, is what you were mentioning, uh, Jack um connected to a 30 dollars tripod again this strikes me as a wonderful time to be a journalist but it's got to be a scary time to be a traditional vendor um because i know you know jade and i see will wright made a comment as well and they were both you know at the real advent you know the birth of hd news and i remember the camera you carried the, the professional camera or your photographer nigel carried, was over a hundred grand at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and so the folks that are making hundred thousand dollar cameras have got to, you know, really be um, wondering about their future in a world with, you know, thousand dollar or you know several hundred dollar GoPros, thousand dollar iPhones. Um, Will Wright, by the way, who's been you know leader at some of the largest news organizations uh, in the United States, says it is amazing how miniaturization has facilitated news gathering: GoPro and iPhone are always in my bag, even for casual walks, because one never knows.
0: But Lucy brought up something that's really interesting. She arrived there, and they had the XD cam, and you were getting footage on the XD cam, and in your mind, you're going, am I going to make it with the the battery power? So talk to us a little bit about that, Lucy. Um, Obviously, quality is important, right? But do you Feel like there's any kind of sacrifice in quality when you're using a gopro or an iphone i swear i looked at luke's video and i was like that is beautiful video and he shot it on a gopro you know so what do you think about that
3: i think the the decision that we made in bringing the xd cam was that we wanted to be able to have a good zoom function we were asked to get a lot of vox pops we were going to be in people's houses you know the devastation that we saw when we got there in terms of people you know still with Two foot of water in their homes. We wanted to be in there, and we felt that that might be the best quality way of shooting. But as I say, it ended up just being a hindrance to us. You know, we weren't sure if we were even going to be able to get the footage to the client in the end. Luckily, we did. But by the time we would finished the transfer, we had eight percent battery on the laptop, so it was really, really touch and go. Of course, we had also problems of using the hotspot and the data that we were using from the hotspot in terms of making that transfer. So. The next day, like I said, we just bought the iPhone and the gimbal, shot everything on that. We got some amazing footage from a rescue center, including Vox Pops. And the footage was extremely classy, made it onto the lunchtime news on, a, you know, the second biggest broadcaster in the UK. So I think we, we didn't sacrifice anything on quality shooting on the iPhone the next day. And obviously the work of Jack and Luke is such a testament of what's possible just with an iPhone. So. we we really learned from that first day of coverage and and we treated it very very differently when we were there the second day
1: so lucy um we understand you know you're based in brussels you mentioned that earlier and covered the flooding in belgium where the death toll was the second highest behind germany and you brought us some video to share with us can you if possible explain what we're seeing and what it was like
3: this was a, a town called so, uh, uh, confusingly, which was a nightmare, I have to say, on uh, on, the, on the news, um, we had first, when we were deployed there, went to Pepinster, which was, is a very small town, by far the worst impacted region. And um, just to contextualize that, there were 38 deaths in Belgium, around a quarter of that were from this very, very small village, where there's a, a meeting point of two rivers Uh, there's a dam very nearby which had burst so you know houses on the banks of this river were just completely swept up we got there and and that's where we shot the b-roll that I was just mentioning on the XD can but what we didn't have was any connectivity at all Um, so we got there we did a very quick job and then drove down the river to to this town to where you can see that we were able to get a sense of the devastation I mean this kind of live rolling situation which we had in the background of our lives you can see kind of flipped over cars in the background there cars floating in the river but we also had really rock solid 4g so we were able to connect the live stream using the the data from the phone but also we were able to hotspot through my uh colleague katie's phone as well so we were able to get a really really good live shot from this town This shot is slightly different. We had to make a decision. We were on the evening news. This is the city of Liège, which is a big city nearby. The river there was also at risk of bursting, so we were able to get a really well lit shot there, also with connectivity, but also, of course, with some street lighting. Um, We were also able to do a bit of a pit stop in a McDonald's, charge everything up, you know, get sorted. In between the daytime shoots and the nighttime shoots, so that's when we moved locations there, and we were really happy with that evening news shot. There was a really fast-moving river behind us. We felt safe, but uh, we were also able to be slightly further out of the action. I mean, like Luke was saying, earlier, it was still a very, very dangerous situation on the ground. There was still a risk that the banks were, of the rivers were going to overflow. So we were having to do a bit of a kind of live, rolling risk assessment while we were working.
0: Seeing that footage and knowing, you know, what how the story got made is all about. I have to ask all of you, where did you sleep? How did you eat? You can take us through a little bit of taking care of yourselves.
3: Well, in our case, we kind of didn't. We brought some food, we left on the Friday morning. Uh, It's about an hour and a half drive. But like I say, I mean, the idea that there'd be anywhere to even buy a sandwich in this town where everything had just been completely turned over bakeries had been washed out the pharmacies had been flooded you know with three feet of water there was absolutely no power within any radius so we basically just powered through for about eight hours and like i said drove to a mcdonald's near the the big city and I, i don't think i've ever been so happy to see a mcdonald's in all of my life just able to plug everything in get sorted sit down for an hour so uh, we we again the second day we brought a lot of stuff with us. We had lots of sandwiches and then stuff in the car to keep us going. But cereal bars, as are always in my bag and, and oat cakes and things like that. But we didn't have a, a big problem there until the evening.
2: Can I can I just say um firstly that Lucy was one of the best reporters on this whole story in the whole country and she was properly properly amazing on those days. I was not there to start with. I was sat on the desk actually writing stories um, for a British newspaper on the first few days and went to do some clear up stuff afterwards. I also just want to say that um, to the the McEditing suite, as I call it, is, I don't think people like, McDonald's is perhaps not a brand name everyone's men to love, but there is no reporter in the world who has not sat and edited a TV story in a McDonald's, it's just the truth <laughs> of the matter.
0: Um,
2: because they're just on weird <laughs> roundabouts and stuff mcdonald's Um, or starbucks yeah well there's not so many starbucks in europe in that sense like so it's always a mcdonald's for me um yeah and and what what lucy was saying about like eating and drinking we we have just in poland a really similar situation we stopped by we were going to the border and we just stopped by like a supermarket and i was like do you know what i'm just going to buy a bag of pasta and a bag of pasta sauce and a thing of cereal and some milk for the morning and we ended up sleeping like the team of us like in a like farmer's hut basically and three sort of mattresses on the floor you just you always have to be prepared for these situations because there's nothing worse and like lucy says like there's nothing there's nothing more uncomfortable i think than seeing a reporter sort of like ask for help from people that are in vulnerable situations it sometimes has to happen but like personally you never want to put that yourself in that situation when you're taking from people that you're meant to be documenting, and um, and they're in a, a terrible situation. Yeah. As well, in Germany, people were
4: very sensitive. Um, there'd been a few issues with with journalists getting in people's faces, people who'd lost loved ones, etc. So you're very conscious that you have to be respectful at all times. And um, I similarly echo what Lucy was saying about the first day and being unprepared, mostly because I had to scramble to get to the location, um, drove up to the the kind of Rhineland region in in West Germany, and just got out at the worst affected car and walked and walked and walked in 25 degrees Celsius heat. I didn't bring enough water with me. So I'm, you know, I'm there doing my job, which is a privilege, obviously. And I'm, you know, gasping for water. So to, to echo what Jack was saying, I I can't drink the water at these stations that are there for the people who have just had their homes destroyed by by water and their their babies have nowhere to sleep and there's no running running water for them to wash themselves. So I just had to carry on going. And at the end of the day, I passed a kind of location just further away from the epicenter of the damage. And uh, a lady took pity on me and gave me a bottle of water, which was really, really wonderful. But yeah, I mean, it's often often the thing that you you forget about because your your adrenaline is up and you're you're so pumped to do the to do the best you can for the for the, for the people that have been affected that you don't think about yourself uh, so yeah you have you have to make sure that you've you've you've, you've got uh, supplies and things like that
2: you no, just, I mean, just just on that as well when you're self-shooting so you forget about that stuff so much when you're on your own and you've got to think of the shots uh, the ethics of what you're doing, the people that you're confronting, like self-care always drops away. It's totally reasonable that that happened to you, Luke. I think it's so common to this, like it's happened to me tons of times, a very similar situation.
1: I, I would um push back a little on that, Luke, <laughs> that not taking the water that's meant for folks who are there, because I know, you know, Jade and I both covered um, I guess the sort of the similar thing that we would have individually covered is hurricanes. And same thing happened, right? You're there one day and it's beautiful because you beat the hurricane and you wait. Mm-hmm. And then it lands close to where you're at and you're the, you're the point person. And I just remember you know, going into these places, usually on an island you know, or a barrier island so you can't get off and no electricity, which means all the convenience stores are closed, all the restaurants are closed. And if you didn't you know, think to stock up, you're without. And you know your job is really really critical because you're getting information out to everybody else who's making decisions on what to do and not to. And, um, and I do know that Red Cross would always show up, and um, in the United States, and, and they'd have water and such. And um, if you haven't prepared, boy, I'd recommend grabbing one of those because, you know, it doesn't. Well, you have, have different, different.
4: You have different weather in America, so it gets a lot hotter. But also um, in Europe. You know, I'm a British journalist in a foreign country, you know, it, it, yes, it's a European country, but it's a foreign country. I'm not a German. Um, and I, there is a difference in the culture. There just is. Yeah. And and so you have to be considerate of that. You have to be careful not to step on people's toes. And at times people were cross with me for filming, you know, and I, you have to. You have to take a beat, you have to, to take a moment and, and take a step back really and um, just realize that you know, you're a guest in, the, in their hometown.
0: Um, well, yeah, I, they've, I, it, they've also endured trauma, you know, probably absolutely. the most traumatic event of their lives and, and you're there with a camera and, and that can be difficult. Mm-hmm. And that is what all of you are talking about, about navigating that. And 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 tr- trying to negotiate that, a way that you can shoot, but still be respectful.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was a privilege to, to cover this uh, story, but it was also a shock. What I saw was a shock. And, and I went to a little, tiny little town called Zinzig, where 12 people died in a care home um, because the water rose just, just so quickly and, um, You know, these were people, these were people that were loved in the community that everybody knew they saw every day and they were there one minute and they were gone the next. And, you know, the whole of this town was in mourning. And, you know, it it really wasn't something that we see. It's not something that we see in this in this continent. We don't see extreme weather events all that often. And in these parts of Germany where I was, It's never flooded like that before. So it was a really unprecedented moment and everyone was in a state of shock, including a lot of the journalists that I bumped into.
3: It was also moving from a, um, like I say, the the, uh, heavy rainfall was overnight on the Wednesday. We were deployed on the Friday morning. So the damage was kind of the extent of the damage was just becoming clear and it was becoming quite a reactive situation in terms of the clear up operation. But what we were sensing is that there was kind of mounting anger as to why this was happening. You know, The first flood warnings were issued on the Monday that week, the rainfall had been forecast on the weekend before. So where people, you know, on that Thursday were just dealing with, you know, these tsunami tides of water ripping through their hands. the second day it was kind of crystallizing into anger and I, I certainly where we were there was a willingness to talk to the press because there was so much anger in the community about why the warnings hadn't been adhered to why they hadn't been evacuated earlier in the week of course then there was still the, the missing person operation going on as well but it was uh, the story was changing all the time and, and that that compassion that there was a, a willingness, you know, the people were happy for us to be there in, in that sense because they wanted to get that message out. Yeah,
1: so I guess you just heads.
2: yeah, just just adding on to Lucy as well, that that also then changed when I got to Peppinster, which was a really interesting thing. Again, I got there maybe a couple of days after you were there, and we were starting to film stories about the river flows and what this would mean. We were pulling there, was like lot and we went to it Vervier? I, can't. I went to Verviers and to Liege and to some different places and the cars were being pulled out and the point in my story was about like what is this going to do for the river floats because all of this debris in the river changes the flows and causes some sort of problem and the, and the ecology around it as well but also while we were filming that people wanted to ask us what was going on and they wanted to talk to us and so we had a bit of an ethical thing because we were like our story doesn't really require the voices of the flooded people anymore. We were speaking to experts and and the channel I was working for had a lot of people um, talking their their truth about what had happened to their houses. And so we have, but then there was this ethical thing like, I'm sorry, I actually don't need to speak to you um, unless, and in the end we did, I put one one woman in, a a local guy who, flown from the UK to try and help out in the local region. And we put him in. Actually, when we finished the edit, we were like, oh, it does need some sort of human touch in there as well. So it was lucky. We, we did speak to people, but that, it, the, the situation changed where they wanted to talk about the different things. It's, it happens in these, in these um, sort of really critical situations, I think, that, that the feeling and the sentiment of the people moves.
0: Yeah, and it's humanity, right? And and as Luke said, culturally it can be different. In, in being in Europe, you're going to different countries that have different cultures and and ways of dealing with shock and grief. Um, even in the U.S., as a reporter, I remember like if you're in the South, people might view something a little bit differently than if you're in the West Coast or the North. So this is these are all things that journalists have to navigate that other people maybe don't have to in in addressing a story or trying to get that interview so i appreciate um what you guys have all brought to that and that's what will Wright says i truly appreciate the compassion expressed in this section so thank you all for that um i do want to bring up a question which takes us back to the iPhone and, you know, technology. Um, This is a question in the chat from Andy Peterson. He says, I've seen on some journalism Facebook groups where some look down on crews who shoot everything on the iPhones and go live with iPhones, uh, preferring professional cameras, which Lucy, you and I just talked about, um, and TVU Live or going live. Do you see that stigma in Europe at all?
4: The first thing I'll say is, Um, I still think there's really a place for, you know, quality photographers with top-notch cameras. There is still always going to be a place of news for that. It's just for the role that I have as a freelance self-shooter, the iPhone is often the best piece of kit. In terms of do people sometimes look down their nose at me? I guess so. Um, I guess that happens. I I was in Carbis Bay at the G7. And I was aware a couple of times of people thinking, you know, who, "Who's this Wally with his with his iPhone?" Um, but you know, it, it is what it is, right? You know, as a journalist, you just get on with it. You're there to, to tell the story. It doesn't really matter what anyone thinks about you and and the technology that you're using.
0: So, follow up: uh, Do people take you more seriously if you have the big gear as opposed to the little gear? Well,
4: to, the the Germans who are just wonderful people. They really are wonderful people. They didn't seem to, they they were just wanting to, the ones who wanted to talk to me, it almost enabled me to, to talk to them on a different level because I'm there with my little tiny camera asking these people about what's happened. And it almost felt like I was able to get a little bit more out of them because I'm not there with a photographer with a big camera on his shoulder. Um, so sometimes I think that happens, but yes, occasionally, you know, if I'm outside the House of Commons and I'm trying to grab uh, a, an interview with an MP, um, they they probably won't stop to talk to, to someone with their iPhone. Um, but that, you know, that's just the way of the world. I mean, yeah. as these things start to change, I think people will take um, self-shooting video journalists like us a lot more
1: seriously. That was what was yeah. going to my mind is, you know, what in these circumstances where you have to be careful, where people are distraught, What's the best way to capture that moment so that you can share it with the world? And is it with a big camera or is it with potentially one of these small cameras? And I remember back in the day and we didn't have the small cameras (laughs) Mm because the iPhones and such weren't such a thing. But with the best photographers, you created this rhythm where, you know, I would try to go up and, and engage somebody and get the conversation started without the photographer mm-hmm. being right in their face. And then, you know, the best photographers would just sort of come up slide and in. be there, slide in, so that they didn't distract that person from a really important thing that they were saying. And you could capture it that way. But if I, if I ever went up and, you know, hey, will you do the interview, stick the you know, mic in their face, you never got, you never got the same. You know reaction
3: and it can be the case that when you're talking to somebody about what's happened about you know the, the, the situation that they've just been through there's a, such an intimacy in that conversation that you're able to have off camera and then as soon as you fire up if it's a big you know xd cam suddenly they freeze up and the interview can completely change and it's got to the point now where i try to avoid having too much of a preamble with people because so often you get the best. You know, material from them for 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 using that word, but um, so I, I agree with Luke that using an iPhone does allow for a greater intimacy. People are much more comfortable talking in an era of Instagram Lives and whatever. It can feel much less intimidating. So I think there's a different quality to the interviews you can get with the smaller kit.
2: Totally. I have I have some strong opinions. I have lots of strong opinions, but I have some really strong <laughs> so, opinions about that about that thing. So firstly, it's done the the iPhones are a reality it doesn't matter if people look down on you or not or whatever It, it just doesn't matter to me secondly I'll use whatever I can to turn a story and get paid so as long as the clients or the people I'm working for are happy and it gets the quality that means I can send in my invoice I know this is a gross thing but that's the reality we have to be paid for our work then it doesn't matter how you skin the cap So I personally, I've stood on press lines next to the biggest correspondents on the biggest American channels. I remember I was at the Barcelona um, truck attack thing on Las Ramblas, stood next to, like, Becky thingy from CNN, whatever. And, like, really, like, they were doing good. Becky Anderson, that's it. And I was there on my iPhone. We're saying the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, pretty much. Like, we had relatively similar stuff. That day, actually, I, um... I used it. I got the iPhone shots of the truck being pulled out and there was no way I could have got my camera out and we sold those shots like they sold really well because we were the only one that got it, got it being pulled out of this one cordon. So that's my thing like it just it's too late the big cameras are important press uh, conferences um, doorsteps really beautiful amazing shooting. Um, difficult times like how I was in, here in Poland, like I needed a cameraman with me, we needed back and stuff, so you may as well take a cameraman. But otherwise, um, like, the industry is already doing it, iPhones are a reality. And to what the other guys were talking about, the intimacy, I have a, I have a really memorable story of this. I was in um, Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and I was self-shooting a story with a child who had autism, who wasn't getting the right support. And the family, um, actually, like I was iPhone shooting anyway, but I just never forget like the fact it was just me. So he obviously has trouble as a child, um, you know, dealing with different people. Like when, when you walk into their house, he takes everybody's belts off and you just have to deal with that. And you don't know what, when you're on your own, you can control what's happening. And we got a, I got a pretty good story there, shot it with him and could make sure that the family knew that I was comfortable with them and the iPhone allowed me to do that. I think it would have been a very different thing if we go in there with an ENG camera on the plane. What's your story? Where's your child? What's going on? I, d- I think the iPhone shooting is is brilliant for that kind of thing.
1: Glad, glad that that's in all of our toolkit today. Mm-hmm. Now, on the weather that you have, been covering this big flooding event, which is historic and never happened before at this level. We really can't talk about that, right? Without talking about climate change. Uh, those are two uh, headlines you see on the screen right there. One from the BBC and the other from uh, national public radio saying Europe can expect more of this in the future and it's expected to be more destructive and more deadly. And what does that mean for you as journalist?
4: Immediately after these floods, there was a weather event in southern Europe, which we recorded. I think in Sicily, a temperature of forty-seven Celsius. I've no idea what that is in Fahrenheit, but it, it would be considered extremely hot in Texas to put it into context. So there were these two weather events, and we had fires um, in Italy and and I think some in in Spain as well. Uh, I basically see my career now. Um, as as obviously a a general news reporter, but as someone who will, you know, I'm going to COP26 in Glasgow at the start of November, which is all about climate change, who will end up focusing a lot on uh, climate change politics and climate change events here in Europe, in the UK, which I don't think I could have predicted when I began my career uh, 15 years ago. I don't think I was thinking, I'm going to be someone who goes to natural disasters, Um, but I just see that being, I see that being the territory going forward.
3: Yeah, and it's moving from something kind of cerebral and academic. Um, A friend of mine who is a journalist for Politico had been talking to a climate scientist in Liège, who for the last 30 years has been talking conceptually about what could happen, then it happens in his town. And that's when the international media kind of descends. And it's only really then that the messages that he'd been talking about for so long had come to pass and likely says it's a natural disaster situation. So I think, you know, for in terms of European policy, there's a lot of talk about reducing emissions as the political side of COP26, but there's also for European people about how to live with these kinds of extreme weather events. And as journalists, how do we cover them in a way that feels safe? Um, And kind of reacting in real terms it it becomes not any more a political story and it becomes about communities whether they feel they have safeguards in place how those warning systems work so it's it's a very very different story
4: i I think i had a a, sorry jack go on no i I just i was just going to say i had a moment um at that care home in sinzig where i was thinking these 12 people who lost their lives were killed by climate change and and that i you know it's happening now you know climate change is is claiming lives so yeah the narrative has has changed to echo what lucy was saying
2: yeah i've got i've got a bit of a just a really current thing that i've just experienced that has been quite powerful on climate change it's not to do with to do with that but here in poland um so one of the activists that we met that is supporting refugees and trying to save people's lives, There's there, people are dying in this, in this forest every day, um, we met her like she wouldn't come on camera or anything. She's a real sort of underground activist um, and she's a f- sort of filmmaker and she had moved from Warsaw or even Berlin, I think, um, to, to the Bio- Biolesia Forest, which is um, a protected ancient forest, which the Polish government is also illegally logging. And so the fact of climate change, she'd gone there to try and save the forest because of climate change. And it means that in that, and she's not the only one, and it means that in that area, this sort of, the society is changing to a greener sort of person, which means that in the area, there are people to support the migrants that are having this issue in the border area, which from, to me was fascinating that, perhaps the more traditional poles in that area would have a different take on some of the younger people who are moving in due to climate change to try and save the forest. So it's having a social effect, it's having like a physical natural disaster effect. It's got so many angles to it.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, to what Lucy said earlier about, um, you know, this shouldn't be a political story so much anymore because as Jack just outlined, it could be a social story, certainly an environmental story. Um, And then back to what Luke said, we come kind of 360 view of this about the people who died and perhaps the cause of death is climate change, right? Um, So when you look at that, when the three of you look at that What is the future in terms of communicating in a way that communities can understand and heed the warnings? Lucy talked about how warnings had been sent out about, hey, we've got floods coming, but it seems that even on that level, perhaps people aren't listening.
3: Yeah, I I think this, moment will probably be a game changer. I I mean, certainly I was at a climate demonstration on Sunday, which was 70,000 people. And a lot of, you know, the reason that people were there was because Belgium has experienced the impact of climate change this year. So I think the story has shifted in people's minds, where before you would maybe struggle to to make the link between I mean the, the, the floods that you mentioned at the start of the talk in the 80s and then in, in the early 2000s people didn't necessarily make that link but obviously as we know more about the science as it becomes such a mainstream issue the story is shifting and I think this moment you know whatever extreme weather events we see in the coming months the, the coverage will be different there will be much more interest um but you know there are still obviously limitations about the the extent to which people are are willing to accept that there are clearly people who are resistant to to the messaging about climate change so but yeah I think it will be the defining story like Luke says uh, of the next uh, few months and years.
2: also young yeah the next generation this is what they care about so as well when you talk about what a story is it's what not only what is the truth of the matter, but also what people care about. And these these young kids and from you know 15 to mid twenties, it's their story. They are terrified that they're about what's happening. And so we have to talk about it in every aspect of our lives, which it does affect.
1: So two things, one is seeing in the comment, um, Andy again, giving an, an example from his area in Tennessee where People's minds are changing because they're impacted by the climate, which is exactly what you all are talking about. What he said is that 20 people were killed when water rose from a trickle to 10 to 15 feet, um, raging water in about 15 minutes, and that since that happened, you know, folks who were once opposed to, to implementing uh, flood zone uh, building requirements are now, you know, saying, "Hey, that's maybe not such a bad idea." Um, I know one of the challenges for journalists is this idea, you got to be fair, (laughs) fairness, and objectivity. And, you know, some folks think that means always doing both sides of the story, right? He said, she said. And I think that has been um, potentially used against journalists, because sometimes one side is um, supported, you know, um, by 98 out of 100, (laughs) you know, folks who do research on the subject. And so even if you get that other side, that other side really may be representative of, you know, 1% of folks who research a subject. Um, How do you handle it on subjects like like climate change? But obviously we're seeing it in COVID, right? On the vaccine and and such, where, you know, there is something that can be done that is clearly helpful (laughs) for the world, protecting yourself from the virus, you know, protecting yourself from, flooding events like this, how do you report on this, knowing that it's also being used in a political way to push decision-making?
4: As a freelancer, sometimes I pitch, I don't pitch some subjects to certain networks because those networks require me to cover the story in a particular way that I'm not comfortable with. So as a freelancer, I make active decisions about which stories I cover. Uh, for which networks but I guess you know it's it's always the way as a reporter it's having that the ability to remain you know doggedly impartial um, and to understand the context of the story you you as the as the journalist have to work out whether someone who says climate change doesn't exist is worth putting on your into your piece Um, and I guess Nowadays that's become a lot more straightforward because you know the, the wealth of evidence is there to show that climate change exists and the science is right. Um, but there are other political, highly contentious political stories that are ongoing at the moment in the United Kingdom where I have had issues before because I've had to provide balance. Um, there, you've just got to push back, I guess as a reporter, you've just got to push back and make your point about why you feel the story should be covered in a different way, but it's one of the reasons I became a freelancer is to to have a little bit more um, control over my destiny when it comes to the stories that I'm put on.
3: The BBC, uh, just as an example of this in the British media, had. It used to have climate skeptic voices there's a, a guy called Nigel Lawson who is uh, is a quite a prolific you know very sort of veteran politician from the 70s and 80s who has a climate change denial view and they used to have him on the kind of flagship morning radio show on the BBC fairly regularly but got in serious hot water about it and it is now the case where there is no space in mainstream media I think for those voices or certainly if you did that there's a real commitment to uh to spreading the, the right message. It's become undeniable in that sense. So I think that has also really, really changed in the last few years. But there is um, there is an energy crisis, I think, I'm not sure if what the situation is in the United States, but uh, the kind of cost of transitioning towards a green economy, the kind of reality of what that is going to cost people living in Europe is becoming clear. So whilst there is kind of broad mainstream media support for you know a green agenda there's also some of the nuances of how this is going to play out in the next few years like how does this impact people's livelihoods and outgoings so i think the story again is going to is going to change once people realize what this is going to how this is going to implicate them um so that there are nuances in the coverage that i I think are are going to be very interesting in, in the next few months
0: yes
2: I also think um, we, we tell the truth, uh, I am not, uh, I'm not here, I'm, we have to be brave, we have to be real, we have to say what it is. I'm actually currently, as we sit here, taking an absolute trolling from a load of polls who are calling me, um, who say, I'm pushing the humanitarian agenda is the phrase I'm getting a lot today, which seems like a weird uh, thing. But you know, I, I, don't, I know that the story I just filed is fair. And as long as you know you're doing the right thing, we, it's our job to be the filter that's how I see it like our job is to be the filter so we we should expect that stuff and that's us being the mesh against for the truth to be in in the mainstream in the mainstream media that's our, that's our job as well to do that I, I feel quite passionate about that.
0: That's an excellent statement and a great way to wrap this. So thank you, Lucy, Luke and Jack for taking the time and being with us today. Thank you for your hard work, long hours. You put in every day to report what you just said, the truth and keep communities informed. And thank you to everyone for watching and listening today. Also want to give a shout out to our incredible team who put this together, Aaron Cargile and Ryan Emmons.
1: Have a great rest of your day. Thank you again for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to Season 1, Episode 3 of How the Story Got Made, produced and recorded by Lattico and hosted by the company's co-founders, President Jade Curian and CEO Paul Adrian.